Hello and welcome to Out of the Question. It was quite an emotional day when I interviewed this week's guest, the former rugby international turned best-selling author Peter Fitzsimons, because it was the day after my father died. I've written about my dad, Desmond Soir, a lot on social media. He was the author of 20 non-fiction books, including The Loneliest Man in the World about Rudolf Hess, In Search of Sir Keith Murdoch, This Wonderful World of Golf, where he went on the golf tour with Peter Thompson, and the runaway bestseller Golf the Dictionary, with illustrations by the great Jeff Hook. Dad, an avid reader, was in a nursing home toward the end of his life, so I ran his Kindle account. Whenever he wanted to read another book, I would buy it and sink it into his Kindle, And the last book I bought Dad and the last book he read was Peter Fitzsimons' biography of Ned Kelly. So it was strangely appropriate that the day after Dad's passing, I was interviewing Peter. I didn't tell him the situation, I didn't want to make him feel weird, but the coincidence was not lost on me. Some would know Peter from his seven rugby tests with the Wallabies as a lock forward from 1989 to 1990. Others would know him from his columns in the Sydney Morning Herald. But most would have read or at least threatened to read one of his 27 books, many of which have gone on to become bestsellers. There have been rugby books, which we'll talk about later, joke books, a book on Nietzsche, historical biographies on Nancy Wake, Kim Beasley, Mawson, Kingsford Smith, Breaker Morant and James Cook. And there have been books on big subjects like Gallipoli, Kokoda, the Batavia, and the Eureka Stockade. And now he's written The Opera House, the extraordinary story of the building that symbolizes Australia. And what I wanted to call the book was The Opera House, comma, where the fuck did that thing come from anyway? <laughs> How is it that 1950s Australia, which was close, 1950s Sydney particularly, which was very close to the dullest place on earth, You know, it was surrounded by a white picket fence. Everybody Mm. ate meat and three veg and went to church on Sundays. Not that there's any shame in that. But, you know, in terms of living on the edge, risk, diversity, different shit happening every day, it wasn't like that. How did 1950s Australia conceive the idea we need an opera house and and then sign off on something as never seen before as exquisite as that. And you look at that opera house, if you look at the Eiffel Tower, Eiffel Tower, the Sydney Harbour Bridge or the Empire State Building or other famous buildings, there's been other versions. You know, we weren't mm. the something that looked like the Sydney Harbour Bridge. There's one in Paris, I think it is. Empire State Building, there's been various versions. Eiffel Tower, there's been various versions. The opera house is like nothing ever seen mm. before or ever seen since. And yet somehow 16 blokes from the New South Wales Cabinet of 1956, I think 57, looked at this scale model of the Opera House and went, yep, 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 we'll build that bastard. And they didn't know how to build that bastard at the time. That's the other stunning thing, that you, you, the, the winning design, there was no engineering plan which said this is exactly how you build it. They didn't know if it could stand up and Mm. it took them five years to work out how to make it stand up. I love that Bob Ellis quote too in the front of your book where he talks about, and what are we going to put in it? (laughs) That's exactly right. In this interview, we get into the guts of how Peter came to be a writer, the word he most overuses in his books, and how he gave up the grog and managed to fit even more into his day. As usual, I started off by asking Peter how his fellow workers would describe him. I get on very well with my fellow workers, although, you know, if you're talking about the Sydney Morning Herald, which is my primary love, my primary professional focus, uh, 
I haven't actually worked in at Daryl for 20 years. I, I was, I guess, one of the first to realise that the benefits of the internet were I didn't actually have to be there. And I remember maybe about 95, 96, I had a technical friend who worked out, who showed me how I could connect my mobile phone to my computer. So I wrote this piece and then I was in at the Herald. I said, hey, everybody, watch this. And I pressed send and the thing that was on the screen suddenly appeared in the Herald system and everybody was stunned. Yeah. And at that point, I thought, what this means is I could actually be, for some reason, I focused on Windsor up at the Hawkesbury River. And I had this image, this sort of revelation that I could be sitting under a gum tree outside of Windsor or by the Hawkesbury River and do my work. And from that point on, I started to agitate saying, look, the shower, shave, shampoo stuff in the morning, I love coming into the Herald and I still do. But the problem is I lose half a day. You know, twice a year the Herald will say to come in to either get a smack or a pat on the back, one of the two. But, <laughs> I, 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 uh, my, but, but I sort of, when I do go in, I in the end, I end up having cappuccinos with people and chatting to old friends and all that. And sort of, I'm about the work. I want to do my columns. I want to do my books. Yes. And so I don't spend, I spend very little time in at the Herald. However, I do host an annual lunch, uh, annual lunch or lately it's been a dinner for about 20 people I've worked with in the Herald Sports Department that are no longer there. And we, we, we gather this year, we gathered at my house and um, you know, I cook dinner and it's terrific, but you know, those, to have people that you know and love and have worked with telling war stories from the late eighties, the nineties and so forth. But I guess what they'd say of me would be the kindest things they'd say would be indefatigable or something like that. They'd say prodigious in terms of, you know, I'm still writing 5,000 words a week for the Herald that are published. Mm my critics and at the Herald, I don't think I have that many critics because I love them. And, you know, I've, yeah, I've worked yeah. with them for so long, but I suppose I tell you what my critics would say. They would say in terms of sports knowledge, not, not the, not, not, not the best in the business. And I'm not, I don't, my, my constituency for, for my sports stuff is, people for whom sport is the pepper and salt of life, not the main meal. I, I suppose I focus in sport, not on who crossed the stripe in the 23rd minute and who won it in 1997, mm. but it's much more the feeling of it. You know, what's right, yeah. what's wrong. The, I love funny stories. I love anecdotes. In any of the fields I've worked in, I've never seen an anecdote I didn't like. You know, I love, I love stories. And I suppose one thing I've done with the Herald over the years in my Saturday column is gotta love this city stories about, you know, about yeah. life on the sports fields of Sydney, New South Wales that are, that are uplifting would be, would be the idea. Peter still hadn't reached the peak in his rugby career when he was suddenly bitten by the writing bug. So I asked him what the circumstances were that led him to first getting published. I was first published in the Herald on the 30th of May, 1986. I was working as a labourer for a dear friend of mine that I played rugby with landscape gardening. He was a landscape gardener. I, I shovel shit, and he. I got an idea. My a woman that I'd been briefly in love with back at university, who'll remain nameless. Let's just call her Kathy. Kathy Ellington. Um, she said to me she was going to be published in the Herald in a readers column, and I was sort of competitive with her. And she told me <laughs> it was going to be published on the Friday. So I thought, what can I write? What can I write? Ah, the Italian rugby team's in town. 
I've had this idea for ages to write a column on the Italian rugby team because I'd played in Italy the year before. That's right. So I took two days off work, the Monday, the Tuesday, and it was 800 words. And I wrote, seriously wrote all day and into the night for two days till I came up with 850 words, which I was happy with. On the Wednesday, I gave it to Greg Groudon. On the Thursday, I went down to get the sandwiches for the guys from the Bellrose, where we were working at Bellrose Retirement Village, and I was always the one, I'll go and get the sandwiches, give me 20 minutes off from shoveling. Yeah, sandwich. yeah. <laughs> and and um, anyway, I go down on the Thursday, get the Sydney Morning Herald, nothing. Get it on the Friday. <laughs> there it is, oh, top wow. of the back page, the greatest day in my life to that point. You can keep your wallabies, you can keep your... <laughs> whatever, the final day of school, the final day of university, published on the top of the back page, Sydney Morning Herald, my life changed overnight. And I, I say to my children, you know, you when you find the right thing, you keep trying different things till you find the thing that you love. And my wife says, find a job you love, you'll never work again. Well, I've never worked again. You know, I'm you and I are talking at right now, 11.42 a.m. on Thursday, the 28th of April, and we'll sign off. I think we've committed to 30 minutes. We will sign off at about midday. At midday plus five seconds, I'll be back to my book on long tan. And I love it. I love it. You know, and I'm at this afternoon at 3 p.m. I'm going to interview Little Patty and Cole Joy, two famous names from yesteryear. And I'm going to interview them because they were at long tan. They were singing as the shells started to land. Oh my God. Um, and well, the, the 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 battle was taking place five kilometres away. That that's not work for me. That is you bloody beauty. So you and I will finish yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Then I'll do an hour for my columns, um, various columns I've got going, and then I'll squeeze in a little bit of long tan. I'll get back tonight at six, and then I'll go from about six till ten, making sure my columns are ready to rock and roll. So I'm not interested. I don't care. I think the Herald pays me from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. or whatever. I'm just as likely to be writing my Herald columns at 3 a.m. Like this morning, from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m., I woke up. And when I wake up and stare at the ceiling, I don't stare at the ceiling. I reach down, get my computer, tilt it away from my wife so the glow doesn't yeah. wake and, and, and just write because I'm clear in the head. Two quick questions before we get into the other one. So when you're playing rugby with Nick Fire Jones, how did you broach the subject of writing a book about him? Uh, he, both both Nick Farr Jones and John Eels were the first two Wallaby World Cup winning captains, and Nick and I were very close to being best friends. So we, in 1979, the Sydney University Colts team came bottom of second division. Nick and I arrived at Sydney University in 1980. He was at St Andrews College. I was at Wesley College. We both turned up for the Colts team. He was not a world superstar at that point. I certainly wasn't. But we started playing. I couldn't help but notice I was getting my name in the paper, and which I liked, um, you know, because I was getting whatever cults. And we won that year, so we went from bottom of the team was bottom of second division '79 to winning in 1980, which was sort of a big deal. And then I we we played first grade the next year, so we were exactly the same age. We made our debut for the Wallabies together in 1984, playing in. We were announced by Alan Jones. This is the team for the 1984 tour of Fiji. I then very quickly fell out with Alan Jones. <laughs> it took me a little longer. But then I, I went and played rugby in Europe for five years and came back, got back into the Wallabies, played 
Seven seven tests, got one for the World 15 coming off the bench, which I was pleased That's with. That's great. And, and uh, in fact, people say to me, what you, any regrets in life? And I say, yes. It was playing against the World 15. I think it was 1992. It was the centenary of the All Blacks. So they must have played their first game in 1892. They got a World 15 to play three tests. In the third test, I was called in to sit on the bench. There was a guy called Troy Coker, who was was uh, who was a wallaby, and not not he and I were not close. So I was sitting on the reserve bench for most of the game, and I was concentrating injury rays. <laughs> I was focusing focusing on Troy's ankle. I want Troy to get an injury so I can go on. And anyway, with seven minutes to go, I missed. And instead of hitting hitting Troy in the ankle, I got Willie off a Henaway in the knee. <laughs> Willie suddenly goes down. I come on with seven minutes to go. And the one thing, I mean, I was in rugby. I was hopeless at lineouts. I was not good at tackling particularly, but I was very good at one thing. I was very good at stealing the ball in the mall. So you had this mass of all blacks and a mass of people. I was very good. And I was always very careful whenever I stole the ball in the mall from the opposition, I would never give it straight to Far Jones or the like. I'd hold it up. Here, selectors, that was me that got it. <laughs> got me. Okay, I want cameras one, three, <laughs> four. Yeah, I've got it. Then you give it. So anyway, on this occasion, there was maybe three minutes to go. The All Blacks were beating us in the third test by four or five points. I stole the ball. I run the blind. I'm in space. Oh there's one guy. There's one guy. His name was John Gallagher, All Black fullback, between me and the line. And he was a very good tackler, and I knew I wasn't going to get past him. And the thought suddenly popped into my head, Stevie Mortimer. Stevie Mortimer. I'd always loved Stevie Mortimer playing for Canterbury Rugby League Bulldogs. He used to do these chip and chases. Yeah. The idea came to me, I've never done a chip and chase. <laughs> if I chip and chase over John Gallagher, he'll never see it coming. I'll do it. There's a one in ten chance. I'll capture, score the ball, and score. Anyway, I get close to him. And then the voice of meekness came. No, that's too dangerous. So I dropped the shoulder into Gallagher. I lay the ball back. The 5-8 the dropped it or whatever, we, and we ended up losing the match. But on my deathbed, I, yeah. go, I should have tipped and chased. Oh, it's, it, it's so anyway, I'm your question. Yeah, yeah. Your about Far Jones. So the Wallabies win the World Cup in 91, sadly without me. But um, then Nick got all these offers to do books, and Nick, being the you know the absolute first and last of the loyalists, said the only person yeah. who do my book is Fitz, and I'm not going to give him what I think his management team recommended at the time was to give me a set fee. He said no, Fitz will take fifty percent, and oh, wow. so, so I swanned around for six months, saying, "Yep, I'm writing Far Jones's biography," and then it hit me, Jesus, I've got to do this. So for the next six months, ten months. I was I was writing it and it sold very well and then eight years later exactly the same happened with Eels and I with John Eels who more or less replaced me in the Wallabies um, and the the gag being I wanted to call my biography of him mighty small shoes to fill the story, <laughs> the story of Johnny Eels by the man he replaced in the Wallabies. <laughs> anyway, I said to John the day before the World Cup final in '99, "Gee, John, it just occurred to me I I, I wrote Far Jones's bio. If you win tomorrow." Why don't I do it? And he said, no, I've got somebody else to do it. And then he called me three months later and said, I've changed my mind. I want you to do it. And I was at that point doing a biography of Nancy Wake. So I had to do the two at the one time. Anyway, and that book 
sold really well. That yeah, yeah. 110,000 copies. Wow. After the Fire Jones biography came out in 1993, Peter's main writing output was about rugby. He wrote Rugby Stories in 1994, then detailed the drama of how rugby abandoned its commitment to being an amateur game in 1996's Rugby War, before releasing a collection of his rugby writing called Loosen the Tight Five in 1999, and then the Eels biography in 2001. But as the 90s turned into the 2000s, Peter felt it was time to change direction. And I could have done rugby books till my nose bled. I could have done 30 of them. But after doing those books, I then did the book on Kim Beasley. And then I started doing military books because I hadn't ever done a military book. And my one on Nancy Wake sold, I think, around 200,000 copies. Wow. Um, and to Brook and then Kokoda. And Kokoda's done 335,000 copies. So, yeah. you know, so, and I could have done military books till my nose bled. And so, and <laughs> biographies of explorers, I've done Kingsford Smith and Mawson, among others, Ned Kelly, the Bush Ranger. Mm. Um, and and uh, I did Breaker Morant last year, who was a murderous bastard. Don't yeah. Get and then then this one was the genesis of the Opera House. I think it was 2015 that I turned over the first sod on doing that, on that book, and I've been doing it in bits and pieces since, but intensely for the last 18 months. Mate, you are going to get a lot of money for the uh, TV rights of that one, I can tell you. I'll uh, go through the next question because I know you have to – you have to go, so I'll, I'll get through it. Uh, so question two is, what's the most unhelpful feedback you've received? I think what somebody early on in my time at the Herald said to me, don't worry too much about the subs, and that was exactly the wrong advice. A good sub-editor working on your stuff is more important than you are, you know, and sub-editors save you. And we had a, we had a thing... There were guys I worked with at the Herald. I'm thinking particularly a bloke called Jim Nixon, another bloke called Andy Kovacs. I liked them. They liked me. And they would look at my stuff and hit everything that I wrote with a hammer. Is this hollow? Is it correct? And they cared. And they, they you know, I had a personal friendship with them and they made my stuff better. And they avoided, they they saved me from, you know, shock and errors. Not, and, and so then we did a thing where maybe 10, 15 years ago, suddenly went to Page Masters. They outsourced the whole thing. I think it was people in New Zealand, no doubt fine people, mm. but they just didn't care because they, no. were not, they were removed. And now we've gone back to the system where I've got a sub-editor that cares and a good sub-editor, both for my books and for my columns, they are worth their weight in gold because you need, and one of the guys I work with at the Herald, his name's Ben Cody. I think he's my sports editor, executive sports editor or something. Or I don't know what his title is, but basically he looks at my stuff and I, I wrote a piece yesterday, you know, thundering on about Greg Norman and Phil Mickelson taking the filthy money from the Saudis. Mm. And I, I'm, I note to Ben and I say, listen, I've written this with hot eyes. I need you to read it with cold eyes. And he knows exactly what yeah. I mean. He's a professional. He looks at it. Have I gone too far? Is that correct? You know, and, and he he gives me a mix of, you know, he gives me pats on the back and sometimes he gives me a light cuff on the ear, you know. and But, but it's, they're valuable. People like that are very, very valuable. Oh, yeah. They've saved me as well. What's the failure you most cherish? Hmm. There's a book that I wrote that I say to Lisa, that's the one I want you to put on my tombstone because it was after my book on Nancy Wake, I did a book on, I don't expect you'll know her because nobody does. Her name's Nene King, N-E-N-E. Yeah. 
like the era of Dwight Abutros. Yeah. She was huge in the 90s. In new Australia. Idea or Woman's Day? All of that New yeah. Idea Woman's Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, was, she, she sort of invented checkbook journalism in Australia mm. and tabloids, serious tabloid stuff. And she was one that paid big money to get the photo of Fergie having his toes sucked right. by the Texan guy and all that stuff. Anyway, she was a wonderfully colourful person. And I wrote her biography and it was just, and as I'm writing it, I go, Christ, this is just amazing. What? She did what? She paid how much? What? And it was so colourful and it was so fantastic. I was absolutely sure that when the, the book came out, it was going to sell squillions and everybody would love it. Anyway, Nini, three days before launching, called me and said, look, you know, I've gone through the whole book. And I said, you know, what do you think? What do you think? And she said, I've read it. And she said, it's like looking at myself in a mirror and I don't like what I see. And I said, Nini, that is problem belong to you. It's not problem belong to me. That's the most compliment, biggest compliment I've ever got <laughs> the biographer because my job as a biographer is the good, the bad, the ugly to write you did pay that money. You did do these things. This is what happened. People's in privacy were invaded in that manner. But, you know, you've got upsides, you've done downsides. And whatever I've done is you've had an extraordinary, colourful life. Anyway, Nini didn't come to the launch. We launched the book. I was still absolutely convinced it was going to sell its socks off. We launched it at the Park Hyatt by Sydney Harbour. Down the runway, the slipway she goes, she goes straight to the bottom of Sydney Harbour. <laughs> and it was six months before a bubble came to the surface of somebody acknowledging that they'd bought or written the book. And I was going into the travel lodge at Coffs Harbour to speak at a lunch. And a couple came out and they said, well, we've just just read your book. And I said, which one? The one on Nanny King. It's fantastic. And I gave them a hug. Yeah, and that's said, right. <laughs> only two people that have, that have, written, that have read that book in, in Australia. And it was a mistake on my part to have written that book. But if you ask me the mistake that I've cherished, I love that book. And that book, when I I think, you know, in terms of writing skill or whatever you want to call it, that one, I say to Lisa, put that one on my tombstone because that's as well as I can write, as good as I can write, one of those two. I, I love that you gave them a hug, the, 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 the two fans of the book, because I made a film many years ago. And when anyone comes up to me and says, I like that film, I give them a hug. Which, what's the film? It's called Rats and Cats. Oh. It was in 2005, and they go, oh, we love rats and cats. And I go, come here, come here. Is it something I can Google or not? Yeah, you can Google. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was about a, it was like a, a journalist does a, a where are they now piece on a kind of a, a Russell Crowe style oh. uh, actor. And it was, you know, we were young. Um, but we put a lot of money into it and the director mortgaged his house to uh, finance it. So, yeah, it was. money back? Did you make money out of it? No. 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 What's Film industry. What's that? It's still, it's a work of art. That's right. That was very kind of Peter to suggest that Rats and Cats was a work of art. And I was a little presumptuous to so readily agree. Rats and Cats was okay. Moving on to question four. Which word or phrase does Peter most overuse? I overuse the word staggering. Um, <laughs> and I think I, I seem to, and when I'm at the end of a book, like right now, I'm, uh, I'm coming to the end of, I couldn't say exactly how many words, but I think it's 205,637 words <laughs> in the, on long tan. And then I'm at the stage of going through everything I've got and then phrases and words come up and I mark them a tick, T-I-C, a, a literary tick. And I think staggering, I had the word staggering 15 times. So as I go through the manuscript, 
<laughs> I reduce that by 10. Um, and I know I say even now, and that was all the way through it, even now, even now. Um, and I, and no less than, no fewer than, I, I overuse phrases. And by the end, and I get my researchers when they're reading, if you see a phrase over and over again, right now my eldest son's reading the book and he knows to mark, I don't want to see this phrase used all the time. And sometimes when you come up with a really good phrase, um, one of the, one, the ones that I love, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. I love that phrase and I'd had had it in twice. So I have my son make an assessment. Where is that phrase more, the most powerful? Yeah, yeah. Your cold eyes reading it. So he makes a choice and gives me a recommendation. That's great. Um, do you have a motto? When I was uh, about seven years old, eight years old, I was at home on the farm with mum, all my brothers and sisters. So maybe I was nine years old because I was just mum and me. So all my brothers and sisters had been gone off to university and to uh, boarding school. So I was the last one left on the farm. And late one night, mum and I were watching the black and white television. And we didn't usually have a black and white television, but we'd get it every Commonwealth Games. We'd rent it. Commonwealth Games and Olympics, and then we might keep it for a week or two after that. And anyway, to cut to the chase, late one night, watching this film, and when I say late, it was probably nine o'clock. <laughs> that was an hour past my bedtime. And there was an old man speaking to a young woman, a beautiful young woman, and she had ponytails, check shirt, and she was crying. And this guy said to her, as I remember it, and I've tried to find the film since, and I've consulted experts, but as I remember it, the old bloke says to the young woman who's crying, my dear, my dear, you must understand that the force of life that makes the birds sing, that makes the flowers bloom, that makes the trees grow tall, is the same force of life that is in you. You must embrace it. And then he said these words, as I remember it, you must suck the juice from the marrow of life and have it run down your chin. Now, <laughs> that's the way it is in my memory. When I Google those words, it don't come up in <laughs> or anything. But somehow or other, that phrase, suck the juice from the marrow of life and have it run down your chin, that would be my motto. You don't need to be pretty. I mean, Christ, Adam, look at you. Yeah. Look at you. You don't need to be pretty. <laughs> But you don't, it doesn't matter. Look at me. I mean, I say people, you know, some people have a face that looks lived in, mine looks lived on. I don't care. I wore a bandana for 10 years, which used to drive people berserk. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care. I liked it. And so, you know, do shit, do different shit, throw yourself at different projects, and it doesn't have to be pretty, but you have to do it with passion. If you could go back five years, what advice would you give yourself? I, I, thought about that somebody said you were going to ask me that and I really thought about it that was the one question I reflected on and yeah nothing came to me I'm sort of like I'm I'm living my life I'm 60 years old and I'm living my life the way I want to live my life if I were to win another version of the opera house lottery for example and had the financial means to do anything, you know, that you wouldn't have to work, let's just say. Even if I had that, I want to work. I want to yeah. work. I want, I'm doing what I'm doing now. This is what I want to do. And it's not, and it, it is, you know, well paid and the rest of it, you know, selling books and being a loudmouth columnist and so forth. But 
it is I'm doing what I want to do immaterial of the money. So even uh, my point being that even if I didn't have to work, and I do have to work to pay the bills, but even, even if I didn't have to, I'd still do exactly what I'm doing now. Just as a final follow-up, when you gave up the grog, yep. were you able to fit more into your day? Yes. Yes, I was. It was the 14th of September, 2014, a very significant day in my life. I went down, it was a Friday, and I went, well, it was a, actually, it must have, yeah. So I was down at Threadbow picking up my son who'd been ski instructing there for three or four months, and the bloke that ran it, a great mate of mine, Jordan Rogers, and I, he's, you know, he was the boss, and I was having dinner with him on that Friday night, and he, I'd been driving for six hours to get there, and uh, Louis, my son, was off with his mate, and so it's just Jordan and me. Jordan reckons that after 20 minutes, I ordered the second bottle of wine. And it was at that point I said, you're not drinking, Jordan? Which is an Australian male way of saying, you know, what the heck is wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. What's going on? We're getting, you know, we're, we're having dinner. Why aren't, we get, why aren't you getting pissed? And Jordan said, Peter, I am running Threadbow. I am responsible on a busy day. I am responsible for the welfare of 7,000 people between employees and people on the slopes. I'm responsible. And then he said, it's something I think I should bring my A game to. Anyway, I just went, yep, but it planted a seed and I had another bottle of wine, if not another one. The next day I go up on the slopes with my son. And as I've said, there is a very, for a fat man, which I was then, there's a very fine line between skiing and trying to get the fuck off the mountain. And I spent most of the day trying to get the fuck off the mountain. And I came down and I felt old, fat, slow and weary. So I did the obvious. Instead of having two bottles of wine, I had three. And I staggered up to bed at mid midnight, completely pissed. But the seed of the previous night was planted of I'm doing, I'm drinking way too much. How would I go if, and I'd given up drinking many times before, but I'd always taken it up after a week or two because I didn't miss it. So my, mm. you know, problem to start it up again. And this time I thought, no, I'll stop. And so I stopped. So without making a big announcement to my wife, Lisa, I just didn't have any, I drove back on the Sunday and instead of getting a bottle of wine out the Sunday night, I didn't, nothing on the Monday nothing on the Tuesday, nothing on Wednesday. The first real temptation came that Saturday night, my eldest son's 21st, and there I've got the champagne glass in my hand, 100 people around me, here's to JK's True Blue, and I looked at it and I thought, if I have a single sip of that, I'll have two sips. And if I have two sips, I'll have half a glass. What kind of a dickhead on his son's 21st would stop at half a glass? I'd have a glass. And if I have a glass, what kind of a... Of course I'd have two glasses. And the truth of it is, if I'd had that, I would have ended up... I would have ended up with, um, you know, three three bottles south, and because I was a bit like that, I just, you mm. know, I, I loved I loved the feeling of being pissed. Yeah. And I I didn't drive when I was pissed, and I didn't beat up anybody, and I didn't have blues. I was a pretty good drunk. But anyway, the cut to the chase, I got through that night without having it. I woke up the next day fresh, good, happy to go, cleaned up from the party. Lisa comes down the stairs, everything's cleaned up. You don't have a hangover. I'm not thinking anymore. Anyway, that was nearly eight years ago. Where, wow. You know, and and in terms of your question, yes, much more productive and much better father, much better husband, and much much better writer because you're not losing time. Mm. 
recovering all the time. And I don't know if you've had your own periods of drinking too much, but mm. I look back upon my heavy drinking and you'd get to the end of a week and look back on the week, just a blur of being pissed. Yeah. Going from lunches to dinner and being pissed and waking up with a sore head. And once you, and my constituency, I've, ri I've written about it, my constituency is not alcoholics. I'm, I was not an alcoholic in the sense of needing it. I could keep pace with an alcoholic on a bad day, but I just didn't need the grog. My constituency is people like me that love the grog, but had never tried a life without the grog. And, mm. and for me, the, my brother-in-law said to me once that when he gave up smoking, what he most missed was having something, you know, the, the theatre of lighting. The ritual. You know, the ritual and mm. something in his hands to do. And for me, I absolutely understood that because when you're at dinner, everybody else is, you know, doing this. And mm. what did I have to replace it? The answer is black tea. I could drink black tea for Australia. I drink more black That's tea great. than I've ever lived. And people say, but too much black tea is bad for you. And they're probably right. I don't know. But whatever the badness is, it ain't nothing as to putting two or three bottles of wine through you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Out of the Question. We'd also like to thank all the guests that appear on the show. And if you have a minute, please subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app and leave us a rating. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me on Twitter at Adam Zwa. Until next time, thanks for joining us.